God, you are the God who speaks to us in uh, expected ways and in unexpected ways as well. You speak to us through your word. You speak to us through the songs of your people. You speak to us through the thunder and through the sun and the heat and the rain and through nature and through other people who you put into our lives. And now we ask you again that you would speak to us, that we may be your people renewed by your word, that we may have hope and life this morning. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I learned uh, very early in life when I was pretty young that it's a bad thing to have the wrong person on the throne and it's a really important thing to have the right king on the throne. I learned this, uh, of course, not by living in some kind of monarchy, but I learned this by watching a very uh, technical film on uh, monarchy and good kings and bad kings. Uh, It was called Robin Hood in the the animated (laughs) version of Robin Hood. Um, And as the story begins, the wrong person is on the throne. I mean, the rightful king of England is King Richard, this bold, noble king, but he is off on his crusades doing something kind of silly, and in his place is Prince John, his little brother. And Prince John is not the rightful king of England. He is a spineless, spoiled brat. He has no concern for anyone except himself. He is greedy. He is spineless. He is an awful king. And because he is so heartless and and so tyrannical in his rule, he ends up just taxing the the heart and soul out of these these poor people who are living in England. So the the town of Nottingham is the setting for this film. And, And you feel for these people because the rule of Prince John is just not a good rule. He is just ruthless in the way he taxes these people. The ruthlessness, the heartlessness is epitomized by a scene where the the sheriff of Nottingham bursts into this young boy's birthday party right as they're finishing singing happy birthday to the the poor young boy. And he bursts open the door and finishes the song with them. And and he knows that there's a present there. And and there's one single present for this little boy. And the sheriff says, oh, go ahead and open it. Let's see what's in there. The boy opens the top of the box and he sees inside there's a coin. He says, it's a whole farthing. And he goes to dip out the box and put it in his hand. But the mean, heartless sheriff reaches down first and grabs the coin out of his hand and says, well, that's great. Prince John is going to wish you a happy birthday, too. That is your tax to Prince John. Thank you and have a happy birthday. And the poor kid, he's left there, his only birthday present. The whole family had had saved together to give him this one present. And, and here it was, he was so excited for that. But because the wrong person's on the throne... He's going to get that gift instead. The boy is left there heartbroken. You know, his little lip is quivering. It's a, it's a pitiful scene. And you think, how could someone be so heartless and cruel? But, but Prince John doesn't care. And it goes from bad to worse there. And this is a, one of the, the kind of key nasty scenes of the heartlessness of this reign. But it goes from bad to worse. Prince John has piles of, of money stacked up in his castle, stacked up in his bedroom, and he spends all day counting his money. But even with all that, he increases taxes again and again, double, triple the taxes, and, 
And if you can't pay the taxes, you end up in jail. And so it reaches a a kind of critical moment when it seems like the whole town of Nottingham is in jail because they've been unable to pay their taxes and the the rain is falling down. And eventually even the, the priest ends up in jail and you think this is as low as it can get. This is what it looks like to have the wrong person on the throne. And, of course, through a whole bunch of dramatic events, Robin Hood, the thief, coming in and freeing everyone from jail and kind of making life in the interim a little bit more happy, finally, in the end, King Richard comes back. And when King Richard comes back, the rightful king of England, when he comes back, everything is set right. Prince John is thrown off the throne. He's kind of put into a a labor camp with his cronies, and, and Robin Hood is exonerated for his actions, and the poor people of Nottingham finally are able to rejoice again. The right king makes all the difference. The right king, King Richard, is back on the throne, and that means everything is fine. Now comes the happily ever after. And so as a child, I learned, uh, probably in the terms at that time, Prince John is the worst, King Richard's the best. Or perhaps looking back on it, it's miserable to live under the wrong king. I mean, Prince John was the wrong kind of king. He was ruthless. He was heartless. He didn't care a thing about anyone else. He was the wrong king, and life under him was miserable. But when the right king comes and retakes the throne, then everything's perfect. I mean, that's the, the simplicity of the storyline then. Uh, terrible with the wrong king, perfect with the right king. Paul is playing on that same concept this morning, albeit in a much less playful turn, a much more serious turn of events here. Paul is telling us that the the wrong ruler has disastrous consequences for life, but the right ruler changes everything. So we're still in Romans chapter 5. We're finishing off chapter 5 today. We're in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. I invite you to turn there now if you haven't yet done that. If you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1116. So Romans 5. Paul is going to give a contrast between two different rulers. He's going to show us what it means to live with the wrong ruler, and then he's going to show us what it means to live with the right ruler. So if you're going to appreciate the right ruler, you first have to know the wrong ruler. The first ruler, the wrong ruler, is death. Paul says that Adam's sin inaugurates the reign of death. Look at verse 12. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So right at the outset, Paul is describing a pandemic problem. This is the the great problem of human existence. The world is a place of sin and death. And if we want to understand why that is true, why the world that we see is a place of sin and death, we've got to understand where it came from. It came Back in the beginning, sin entered the world through one person. Sin entered the world through Adam. And because he sinned and the world became a place of sin, as a result then, death reigns. Death is here. Paul says because everyone sins, everyone dies. That's the logic here. Now, you might have noticed that Paul is starting a comparative statement here. He says, just as sin entered the world through one man, but... He's going to not finish that comparative statement. He's going to skip down to verse 18. We get back to that comparative statement. But for now, he's got to clarify a few things so we understand what he's talking about here with sin and death ruling the world. So this is what he says in the next two verses, verses 13 and 14. 
To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, sin, excuse me, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. <clears throat> Paul wants to make sure that we are not getting the wrong impression here. Uh, we hear that, that death entered the world through one man's sin. We hear that death entered because of Adam, and this doesn't seem fair to us. I mean, if death is the punishment for sin, then only Adam should die. He's the only one who sinned at the beginning, at least, in that perspective, and so only he should be the one who's liable for that. Only he should die. Adam broke an explicit, clear command of God. But there are tons of people who have never heard God's command and there have not broken the clear, explicit command of God. I mean, what about the whole set of generations from Adam to Moses before God's law was given? That They had no clear instruction from God. I mean, yeah, Adam was told, don't eat from that tree. And he clearly disobeyed God's command. It was a clear command. He disobeyed it. So, of course, he deserves death. He, he did sin against God. But there are these, all these generations who didn't have the clear command of God until Moses came. But what about all those people? How can death be punishment for them if they didn't understand God's clear command? Well, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that death is the punishment for sin. He's saying that death is, in fact, not the punishment for, those, for sin for those who don't have God's clear command. Look again at verse 13. He's saying people sin even when they don't have the law. They are still sinning, but they aren't held accountable in the same way that those who have God's clear command are. So Adam had a clear command, and so he's held accountable in a different way, in a more substantial way than those who don't have the clear command. Moses, the Israelites who had God's law, are held accountable in a more strict sense than those who don't have God's clear command. And yet, at the same time, death still reigns the world. But the distinction here is that death reigns the world because death is a consequence of sin. Death is not the explicit punishment of sin for those who don't willingly break the command, but it still remains the consequence. This is how things work. Death is the result, the natural outworking of sin in the world. And so when we look out into our world and we see that it's marked by sin, it should not be a surprise that death reigns. It shouldn't be a surprise when we see a world that's full of sin. Death is the natural result. Sin naturally brings death. So when I was in high school, I took a science class, and we had a, a little unit on electricity, and we had a little lab exercise that we had to do, and we had a set of batteries and, and some wires with the ends stripped off of them. And I was reading the lab instructions and trying to figure out how to put this little experiment together and figure out what's going on there. And I know very little about electricity, and you know I'm ninth grader at this point. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to follow the directions, but somehow I get things wrong. I've got this D-cell battery, and I've got these two wires, and I end up putting one wire with a bare end on the negative terminal of the D-cell battery, and with my thumb, I end up pressing the other end of that wire, which was also bare, on the positive end of that battery. And when you do that, you very quickly learn that that means electricity is going from one end to the other. And when electricity is going and your thumb's holding wire onto battery, it very quickly causes a sharp degree of pain. Immediately, that wire was etched on my thumb, burned a hole in my thumb, not a hole, but it burned a line in my thumb. 
And of course, that wasn't the teacher's punishment for me doing the wrong thing. I wasn't intentionally doing the wrong thing. I was trying to follow the directions, but I followed them wrong. And, and yet, I still faced the consequence of following the wrong directions, right? It wasn't, the burn on my thumb wasn't the way, the teacher's way of punishing me for doing it wrong. The burn on my thumb was the natural consequence of me doing it wrong. I wasn't intentionally doing it wrong, and yet I still suffered the consequences. That's how things work out. That's how electricity works, apparently. Now, Adam explicitly disobeyed God's clear command, and so he's sort of the, the archetype of a sinner. He heard God's clear command, and he explicitly disobeyed it. But even those who don't sin in that same way, who don't hear a clear command and disobey it, even they live under the reign of death. Even the generations from Adam to Moses sin, and the natural result of sin is death. The reign of death is the natural outworking of a world that's marked by sin. Sin leads to death, and because of the sin of Adam, the sin that you and I repeat and that everyone else in the history of humanity has repeated, either knowingly or not, death rules the world. And this is the problem that you and I and every single person on this earth have to deal with. This is where things get more sober because we realize that in truth, the world as we experience it is ruled by death. Sooner or later, every single one of us faces the rule of death. I think you remember the first time that someone you were close to passed away. I mean... Probably, depending on the age you were when this happened, you had some sense that, that death was a, a, a separation, that death took someone away. But, but until that first time where someone you really interacted with on a daily basis, someone you really cared about, until they passed away, the, the real reign of death didn't sink into your heart. But the first time you lose someone, you realize how painful the reality of the reign of death really is. Here was someone you loved, you cared about this person. They were a part of your life and death rips them away and leaves this hole that's never totally filled. And then you know that death does indeed rule the world. Death is the great disruptive force that can kind of hovers over us like the sword of Democles. You know, it's always there, always a threat. I saw an article in the New York Times last week that there was a, a couple of families who were out um, watching fireworks on the 4th of July. So here's a day of celebration. They're out on a boat. They're having a good time together. They're watching the fireworks at night. You know, a great day. It's a holiday. It's a, it's a good celebration. And when they headed back to the dock, tragedy struck. Something went wrong with the boat. There were too many people on it. And in the course of that, the boat sank and three children died. You think, how can this happen? You know, this was a day of celebration. We went out to, go, to watch fireworks. We went out to enjoy a holiday, and, and suddenly these kids are ripped out of these families' lives. And it's another reminder that death is the ruler of the world that we live in. It doesn't take much imagination to, to understand the extent of the rule of death in our world. The longer you live, the more you experience this kind of tragedy. You know that this is the marker of our existence. This is the great enemy. Death is the disruptive force that pushes into our lives. We're reminded of it time and time again. And Paul's saying all of that started with that first human. 
He's pointing back to the beginning. He's saying, Adam is the, the representative human. Adam sinned. He explicitly disobeyed God's command. And as a result, the whole course of history has been fundamentally changed. Adam became the first in a long, unbroken line of sinners. One man's disobedience has spawned a whole age of sin and death. And now, as the passage tells us, verse 14, verse 17, verse 21, death reigns. Death is on the throne. And Adam has the dubious distinction of being the first. And we might, again, challenge the fairness of this and think, why should what Adam did back in the beginning have an impact on me? What does that have to do with me? But Paul's not getting into the details of that. He's assuming what he knows is true. Every single one of us is a sinner. We are Adam's children. We are like Adam. So Paul's just pointing us back to the beginning. He's saying, Adam was the first one, and you are a legitimate heir of Adam. You have chosen the same path that he chose. The sin of Adam is the sin of all of us. His sin is my sin. His sin is your sin. You are Adam's children. And because we are like Adam, we look around the world and we see that our great enemy is death and death is on the throne. The wrong king is ruling. Of course, this is all very depressing and very difficult to hear. But we have to understand that difficult piece of it. We have to come face to face with the reality of human existence, the reality of the reign of death, if we are going to really cling to the second part of it. See, the first ruler is death. Adam's sin inaugurates the reign of death, but Paul is getting us past that. It started there, but it doesn't finish there. It moves past that. The second ruler is grace. Paul says that the sacrifice of Jesus inaugurates the reign of grace and life. And this totally changes the picture. And Paul has already told us in Romans that Jesus died so that everyone who believes in him will be declared righteous, will be justified in his sight. And now he's showing what that means in relation to that depressing story of the rule of sin and death in Adam. He's saying this overcomes that. Jesus overcomes the rule of sin and death. He's going to have a series of comparative and contrasting statements here saying, death did that, but grace does this. That was true in Adam, but this is what's true in Christ. Let's look at those contrasts, starting in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. We've already seen what the trespass is, right? The trespass is Adam's explicit disobedience to God's clear command to him. That's the trespass. And that leads to the death of many. But the gift is the death of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus. It's God's grace in action. And the gift is incomparably greater than the trespass. He's saying Adam's sin just cannot be compared to the righteousness of Christ. His, the, his sin that started this rule of death, that's, that's not even the same picture as God's grace that rules in life through Jesus Christ. It's a totally different thing. The, the reign of grace in Christ overcomes all of that that started in Adam. It, it's a totally different picture. Listen to the, the verbiage of 15. How much more 
Did God's grace and the gift overflow to the many? So yes, one sin brought the death of many, but the gift brings an abundance, an overflow of God's grace and life. The contrast continues in verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Again, the picture is Adam's sin versus God's gift. Adam's sin brought condemnation because he was guilty. The result of Adam's sin is condemnation. But God's gift, the the death of Jesus for us, God's gift follows many sins, not just the one sin of Adam. It follows many sins, and it results in justification. One sin, condemnation. One gift, despite many sins, leading to justification. Again, Adam's sin simply cannot compare with God's grace. Look at the next verse, verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Again, Adam brings the reign of death. Jesus brings the reign of life, the reign of those who receive God's gift, who have been declared righteous, who receive this great gift of grace in Jesus Christ. The grace of God in Christ brings a a superabundance that can't be compared to the sin of Adam. How much more? This is the language of grace. How much more? Yes, sin reigned in death, but how much more God's grace reigning in life. So yes, Adam started this awful reign of death by his disobedience. But compared to the incredible reversal that is in Christ, that is nothing. That's not worth mentioning anymore. The important thing is that grace reigns. And we tend to look at the effects of sin and death because this is the reality of our existence. This is what we have to deal with. We have to live with on a daily basis. And we tend to think that that is a powerful thing. And it is a powerful thing. But Paul is saying, get your eyes off that. And if you want to understand real power, you have to look to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It has overwhelmed and overcome that other world, the world that's ruled by death. Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. It's the same contrast again and again. Adam's one sin leading to condemnation. Christ's one sacrifice leading to justification and life. Or the same thing restated in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Adam's disobedience makes many sinners. Christ's obedience makes many righteous. And then the concluding two verses, verses 20 and 21. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now it's easily... It's easy to get sidetracked when we look at the details of some of these verses. You look at the beginning of verse 20, and 
And you think, wait, was God's purpose in the law really to increase trespass, increase sin? And then you start looking back at verse 18 and you think, wait, did he just say, did he just declare universalism? Did he just declare that everyone without distinction will be saved? And and then you start looking back about Adam and, and sin entering the world. You think, well, can sin really enter the world through one person? Can death really have been brought by one person? And you start to look at this whole passage and you think, is any of this any fair at all? What is Paul talking about here? But as important as some of those questions are, they are peripheral to what Paul is trying to do. Paul is trying to take a step back and look at the macro level. I mean, yes, there are all the details of the passage and the details of our existence as humans, but he's taking a step back and saying, this is what we know to be true. There are two eras. There is the era that started in Adam, and you and I are born into the era of Adam. Sin leading to death, the rule of death. But there is a new era begun in Jesus Christ, and that is the era of God's grace breaking into the world, changing all of that through the one man, Jesus Christ. So as the one man, Adam, brought sin and death, the one man, Christ, brings grace and life. I don't know if you ever had one of those choose-your-own-adventure books when you were growing up. Uh, I had a couple when I was a kid, and you get to a certain point at the end of a chapter or whatever, and it says... If you want to follow this course, you make this decision, you go to page you know, 25. And if you want to make the other decision, you go to page 36. And then you flip over, you make your decision, you flip over to the one, and you uh, follow that train. And then you have to make another decision. You choose between this A or B, and then you go to that part of the book, and you kind of decide how the book unfolds. And in a sense, this is kind of that. I mean, Adam is making the one choice. He's at the beginning there, and he makes the choice of sin, of disobedience, of that. And as a result of Adam's choices, we have the world as we see it, a world that's marked by sin and death. But it's almost as if Jesus, as the second Adam, is back there at the beginning again, and he's making those choices, but he's making the opposite choice of Adam all the way down the line. He chooses righteousness. He chooses obedience. And the result is, because of God's grace, righteousness, grace, the reign of grace, life comes into the world. Look again at, at verses 20 and 21, picking up halfway through verse 20. This is the really important part for us to grasp. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, do, you, do you catch the, the significance of that? Statement where sin increases, grace increases all the more. I mean, Paul wants you to know that the superabundance of God's grace, he, he wants you to, to get your focus off the power of sin and death, the power of things that you see with your eyes and, and the, the parts of human existence that we don't like, the parts that really mar our world. He wants you to get your mind off that power and see that true power, that the real power that makes a difference is the power of God's grace. Look to the power of God's gift in Christ if you really want to be impressed with something. Sin is no match for grace. Where sin increases, grace super increases, he's saying. Sin reigned in death, yes, but grace reigns through righteousness, and that reign leads to eternal life. This is what is available in Christ. 
But you and I really are Adam's children, and that means that it's very hard for us to really hear this. We look at the world and we think, well, death still rules. I mean, look around. Death is on the throne. We are still living under the reign of death. And we find it really hard because of our experience of life, we find it really hard to believe that there is, in fact, an alternative. We find it really hard to believe that there really is something other than death on the throne. And so many of us choose to continue to live under the reign of death. Paul is telling us that that grace reigns, that grace is on the throne, but this isn't automatic. We have to accept the gift that God has been given to us. We have to accept his good reign of grace. And yet many of us reject it. This would be like an orphan who has spent their whole life in in an orphanage, and not the not the nice kind of or, orphanage in Jamaica where it's like a family, but but the kind where you're either in your crib or you, you hope that there are some people there to play with you. you. You've spent your whole life in this existence that's more or less subhuman. You're, it's not life as it was meant to be. And then one day you are told that someone has selected you for adoption. They are going to bring you into their family. And and the people are really excited about this. It's a, it seems like a really good family, and, and they're going to love you. They're going to care for you. You're going to have the parents that you always wished that you had. But it would be like declining that and saying, no, I, I'm going to stay here. I don't, I don't need a family. I'm not going to have a family. That's, that's not for me. And in a sense, I think you can understand that sort of an impulse. I mean, You stick with what is familiar. You stick with what you know. But when a new possibility opens up, that it's unfamiliar, and therefore, in a sense, it's scary. Things that we don't know are inherently scary. It's a new experience. And yet, if you take that step and follow that, that, that new, beautiful story that's been opened up for you, you see that that is life as it was intended to be. That's what you are meant for. And this is the position that we find ourselves in. We have lived under death for our whole lives. We've lived under death forever. This is what we know. We are familiar with the world of sin and death. And we hear about grace and life and gift, and and those are things that, that we're not so sure about. Those are new things. Yes, that new possibility has opened for us, but it's difficult to really believe it's there. And yet Paul is taking us back to the the bare elements of human existence. This is about death and life. These are your two options. Before, you thought death was the only option. And before Christ, death was the only option. But this has all changed. The gospel is that there is a new possibility here. Yes, it's a a strange possibility of living under the reign of grace. We maybe don't even know what that would look like. But Paul is saying this is the new beautiful option that God has given you. His grace has broken into the world and made it new. Yes, we can choose to reject it. We can choose to continue to live under the reign of death. But that would be the choice to lose out on the wonderful opportunity, our our only chance for life. This is what we were meant for. Two alternatives, death and life, sin and grace. 
You can either follow the path of Adam or accept the new path of life in Christ. I don't think anyone wants to live under the reign of death, really. Death is the great enemy. I pray that God would give you eyes to see that there is a possibility beyond that, that it's not just the reign of death, that there is something that overwhelms and overpowers that, that changes the reality of the world. If you will accept the gift of God and Jesus Christ, you will see that there is a new reality. You are, are able to live under the gospel of grace, the good rule of God himself. So there are two things for us to know from this passage. On the one hand, we have to know that we are indeed Adam's children. We follow Adam's path, the unbroken chain of those who disobey God, who sin, and who contribute to the reign of death in the world. So that's the starting point, recognizing that reality of sin, that that really is our history, that is our past, that is our starting point. But you really have to move beyond that, or this is just a depressing passage. May God open your eyes to see that death is not the ruler. The right king has come onto the throne. He has changed that reality. Death is not the final word. Adam is not the last man. The true Adam has come. The second Adam has come and has changed the reality of the world for us. The right king is on the throne. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of His rule and of His peace and of His justice, there will be no end. And so those who accept God's gift are able to rejoice because grace has overcome death. The story of Jesus overcomes the story of Adam. The world is made new and we are invited to participate in the rule of grace so that we may have life through Jesus Christ instead of continuing to live in the pitiful existence of a world of death without hope. You are offered life this morning. Let's pray for God to give us eyes and ears to hear. Father, your grace is our great hope. Move in our hearts that we may respond to your grace, that the story of Jesus would be louder and stronger and more powerful, a story that draws us in more than the story of Adam's sin and his disobedience. Draw us into the story of Jesus so that we may follow him, that we may put our whole hope and trust in him, that we may find life. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.